This week on Myths and Legends, it's two stories from Norwegian folklore that are all about dads. In the first, we see a prime example of why hotel reservations are oh so important and why asking permission is complicated when you have seven dads to deal with. After that, it's a story about classic miscommunication and why, when you don't know what to say, the answer is always axe handle. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the orc. And no, not that one. This is Myths and Legends, episode 322, Ask Dad. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are tales you might not have heard before, but really should. Today's episode features two stories from Norwegian folklore, both from Peter Christian Ashbjornsson, put down a paper in the 1800s. The first one is a story about the seventh father of the house, and we start off on a journey with a young traveler. See the world! Find yourself! You're definitely not going to be dead in a week! Everyone had shared a kind word or two, or tucked a savory something inside a cloth for the young man to take on his journey. The send-off was more than he'd expected, and then he was off and away to see what he could get into. Because, you see, the boy wanted more. More from life than to live in this stifling, stuffy little village. More than the lives of his father and grandfathers, who had never left the five miles surrounding their farm. He wanted exploration. He wanted to see the strange and wonderful things of the world. Two hours ago, he'd stopped off for a bite of cheese and a sip from a nearby spring, just jamming his face in and taking a slurp, before wondering about the people downstream. Then he shrugged. It was the 1500s. Germ theory wasn't a thing yet. An hour after that, the trees began to spread and grow thicker and older their roots more difficult to maneuver. Light grew scarce beneath all the branches, and by the time the traveler stepped from the forest on the other side, evening was on its way. Fortunately, he was not alone. Acres of pasture rolled across the view, speckled with Norwegian reds and sheep. The farm was breathtaking, and in the distance sat a tiny house, which ended up being a modest manor up close. His first night on the road, and already he might sleep in better conditions than at home, the traveler thought. That was a lucky break. That is, if the homeowner would allow him to stay. He followed the sound of splitting wood around the corner of the house and cleared his throat. At the noise, a gentleman in a drenched shirt lodged his axe in the stump and turned. Wood chips sprouted from his beard, and his brows grew wiry and off his face, and they were as thick as fingers. The man was more wrinkled, and he was grayer than the traveler had expected, given the mountains of wood stacked around the chopping block. Hello, sir, the traveler greeted. I was wondering, could I maybe spend the night here? I'm just passing through. He hoped his face looked friendly. The old man laughed and unstuck his shirt from the crevices above and below his belly. He said, that, my friend, is not up to me. It's a question for my pops. His grin revealed a flat line of ground teeth, yellowed where they fit together. It's my dad. I I live with my dad. Now, the traveler was confused. This man looked like a grandpa himself, a great-grandpa. 
in fact, but not a great grandpa. It's not that he wasn't nice. It's just that they only met. So how was he to know what kind of... My dad's inside, the woodcutter cut in. Straight through the door there, go to the kitchen. The old man's in there. Right. The old man, the one inside, not the one standing right here. Got it. The traveler nodded and skirted around piles of wood as the man's axe began to fly once more. Soon, the traveler found himself sandwiched between the swinging door and the aroma of the most divine stew simmering on the hearth. The embers beneath a pot flared and faded, almost in time with the faint sound of chopping of the wood outside. Sure enough, another man stretched on all fours on the floor, in front of it, grumbling, blowing on the fire. Excuse me, the traveler called, projecting loud enough to grab the man's attention. Startled, the father turned and scrambled to his feet. Who are you? For a moment, all the traveler could think of was, wow, this guy is way older than the first one. But because that isn't a great way to start any conversation, he soon recovered and explained that he needed a place to stay for the night. Just one night, and then I'll be on my way. I'm seeing the world, finding my fortune. You know, medieval, impoverished, fairy tale youth stuff. He rocked back on his heels and tucked his thumbs into the straps of his bag. Well now, hold up. Love to... That will be a question for my dad. The chef slung a towel over his shoulder and crossed his arms. Come again? The traveler blinked long and slow. Okay, yeah, sure, I can do that. He looked around expectedly. Parlor, that away. The chef pointed to the door in the corner. He noticed a splatter of sauce on his finger and tasted it. Ah, Don't be long, though. If you can stay, dinner will be ready soon. He winked and turned back to the pot. parlor was more difficult to find. The library, the study, the junk room, the bathroom, the dining, oop, there it was. Of course, it was the last place he looked. The parlor was enormous, the size of two rooms smushed together, walls of books, stacks of books on every surface. Really, it was like a second library. Except it must be the parlor because on the sofa sat the chef's father, the woodcutter's grandfather. He was a shrunken fellow, Frail, but with the construction of one who used to have broad and muscled shoulders, but now had only broad bones. His hair was screaming white, the pepper of his apparent son's hair having long fled the salt. And the open book on the table in the center made him look even smaller. Hello there, the traveler called, hunching as he entered, as though lowering himself would somehow ease him into the reader's view. But, of course... The father startled like the first two, and the traveler clasped his hands in apology. I'm so sorry, your son and I guess your grandson said I might find you in here, so here I am. The reader looked up from the page, his head bobbing like a toy. He was shivering and shaking, and when he tried to smile, his cheeks and lips quivered beneath the strain. Are you cold? The traveler asked, searching the room for a blanket. I can light a fire for you. No, no, the reader wheezed. His bent finger reached for the edge of the page. And the traveler hurried to help him turn it. So I was wondering if you would mind putting me up for just one night? The young man asked, loud and slow. The reader scowled and pressed the back of his curled fingers against his ears. 
no problem hearing, that's ageist. And I would say yes, except that would be a question for my father. Yes, right, of course, the traveler said. Quite the uh, nesting doll situation we have here. There are no dolls here. We are dignified men. The reader was getting annoyed and spitty, but he flipped a hand over his shoulder and told the traveler that he should be thankful that his daddy was in charge. Blinking, the traveler spotted another figure in the back corner of the parlor. He looked around. How big was this TARDIS house? He shook it off. That was somehow the less weird thing about the situation. Because, slumped on a wooden bench, with a high back and arms, sat the father. Well, the father's father's father. The gentleman in the back looked ancient, decades older than the reader, and even more bent. His cheeks puffed like bellows and smoke rose from the pipe wedged between his lips. He, too, shook like a leaf uncontrollably from head to toe. Several times he almost lost the pipe, and bits of dried leaves of the pipe fluttered onto his lap. The traveler got down to business, unsure how much time the smoker had left. It would just be for tonight, he promised at the end. Hopefully this was the last stop. It would be really late to wander the countryside now, and he had heard terrible things about the dark forest. Do I look like the man of the house? The smoker laughed, but his rasp turned into an unstoppable cough. Don't don't smoke, kids. There was no more talking, but he pointed to a staircase. Thank you? The traveler sagged with the dip of his chin. More years, fewer words. This day could not get weirder. Things are absolutely going to get stranger, but that will be right after this. The stairs led to a long, angular hallway lined with bedroom doors, which the traveler opened in an organized fashion. Halfway through, he found a room with a glowing hearth and a lump beneath a sheet. No sound, no breathing was... Wait, was this one dead? A floorboard creaked and the traveler winced, but the lump on the bed still did not stir. Hello, he called, are, are you awake? The traveler stood over the bed. He didn't know if he hoped this guy was living or not, but if he wasn't, he definitely did not want this guy to pop up. And when he pulled the sheet away, the eyes were staring straight up in the air, but he appeared to be alive. He was just sleeping with his eyes open. The kid asked, uh, you know, I was just wondering if I could sleep here tonight. Well, not here, not next to you, but I mean, I'm not picky, so. He didn't really expect a response, but he got one. With a groggy voice, the mostly corpse of a man said, ask the man in the cradle. He is my father. It would have been comical had the traveler not heard so many stories of what happened to people in houses in the dark forest. His bite of cheese had long worn off, but something about this day stole his appetite for anything more. Sure, the cradle, your father's in the cradle. And he was. Collapsed and folded in on himself, tiny. No open eyes this time, just an occasional gurgle. The traveler was really confused now. Was this, was this a joke? Like, what in the world? 
What sort of Benjamin Button nonsense is this? The baby cooed and spat up on the blanket. Still, the young man needed a place to stay, and, I mean, sunk cost fallacy. He was already here, so, even though he was sure there would be no reply this time, he asked. However, the words came. They were slow and grating and crusty, like the crystallized leftovers on the edges of the baby's mouth, the tiny baby man. It took forever and the traveler had to hold on to every single syllable. I'm not going to try to imitate a baby man, because what would that even sound like? He said, You want a place to sleep for the night? Well, I can tell you we have plenty of room, so I say yes. The message had taken a good 20 minutes to spit out, sound by sound, but it was worth it. Thank you, thank you so much, the kid said, standing up. I will be completely out of your hair by sunrise, I promise. This place is really weird. The traveler looked at the baby's smooth head and turned to go. But that was when he heard it. But first... Oh, no, come on. The traveler groaned. There was a but. You will have to... No, no. Let me guess. I need to go ask your father. There is a horn hanging on the wall. The... The baby daddy said, I'm sorry, it was just sitting right there, I had to. But he trailed off, as the traveler picked up a lantern and walked to the edges of the room, looking for a horn to blow and call the father. A horn to... Wait, what? No, it couldn't be. But it was. The traveler had found the horn, dangling from a leather strap, draped over a nail. At the widest end, the tiniest pillow poked from a rim lined with fur. The smallest set of hands lay folded amid the hairs, and a head, smaller than a pear, lay among them, resting. Human features, but somehow not. The face looked only partially formed, and the young man gasped and tripped. He shouted, spitting out his question to hurry and be done with the whole thing that was about to drive him crazy. I mean, what was even happening here? It was impossible, but the tiny being's eyes opened and a grin formed on half its face. Yes, my child. And that was all. Relief washed over the weary traveler, and he stumbled right onto the chair. A scraping sound followed, and a table laden with fine plates and platters overflowing with meat and fruit and vegetables, and of course the chef's stew, moved into place. The finest food, the finest ale, and when the traveler was satisfied, a bed appeared. Soft and inviting, the frame was made of carved wood, draped in textured fabrics and reindeer hide. As the young man finally eased beneath the covers, with heavy lids, he wondered how the old men stayed alive for so long, and how they turned into tiny babies and half-formed pear people. What was their secret? And also, how could he avoid it? He hadn't thought to ask, and now he was too tired, and the hour was very late. So... He closed his eyes at last and fell asleep. And as he did, he thought he heard the faint sound of a horn. A horn rattling against the wall and a rasp, turning back into a laugh. The boy continued on the next day, the seven dads letting him leave, no problem. And waving goodbye, they wheeled the dad who was like he was dead outside, and the baby dad gripped the horn. The boy did not go on to seek his fortune. He settled in the next village as soon as he found a job. He figured 
When it came to luck and the strangeness of the dark forest and the wilderness at large, it, frankly, did not get much better than seven caring dads, and he didn't want to press things. Also, now that he had a baby speak to him in full sentences, and earned the approval of a tiny man and a horn and knew that both of those things were possible, he had no need to see what else was out there. really know what happened to the Traveler in the end. In fact, the original tale simply ends on him being glad that he found the father at long last. No twist, no weird sounds as he fell asleep, just wow, he finally made it. Okay, moving on, our second story today is also from Norwegian folklore, and also about a father. Just one this time, and we join him just as he's learning that his family has a big problem. So the innkeeper had not been a friend after all, the man realized with a slump. All the food, the drinks, the feasts over the past few months were not donations made to a struggling family of five in a time of need, as he had thought, but rather indulgences bought by the family in need. The family of five. His family. Delivered on credit, the news nearly bowled him over, no matter how many times he asked. But we don't have credit, he roared, spreading the stack of notices across the table. The trail of growing figures, growing debt, was easy to follow, although this was the first time he had seen any of the papers, and the last one, the one beneath his tapping finger, warned that the bailiff would soon be on his way to collect. To collect what we don't have, the man, both a husband and a father, stared at the blank faces before him. How long has this been going on? The women and the children, however, said nothing. Nothing more, that was. They had already said whatever they could to soften the blow, each one offering something to fill the silence. It was a misunderstanding. At least it could be spun that way, you know? Who really knew how credit worked? It was all a mystery. Just convince them that you, you know, didn't understand. Uh, but things had started to get out of hand. One admitted before the others shushed and elbowed away any hint of responsibility on their part. We had to eat, the mother said above the rest, talking loud and slow. I do hope you understand and that you can see why the four of us must go now, she motioned to herself and the children. At this, the man's mouth fell open. Go, but the bailiff will be here in the morning. You have to explain what happened. You can't go. I, you know, I've had this plan for weeks, it was a visit to my sister, and now you can tell the bailiff what happened. I just convince him that you didn't understand, and when things calm down, which they will, we'll come back. The man's shoulders began to shake as the women and children stood. Satchels and sacks appeared in their hands, like they had planned for this, all lifted from beneath the table. They were packed and ready, they were really going to leave. We will be back, they assured him. You, nothing to worry about, Dad. Worry, however, was all the man could do as his wife, daughter, and two sons disappeared in the distance. The parents had shared a word in private just before their parting, but the meeting was the same as in the days and years leading up to it. Disconnected, one zigging while the other zagged. It was a problem. 
the problem. We'll be back by the third, the woman whispered. We don't have a herd, the man shot back. I'm a ferryman, not a farmer. You know that. I said the third. I said third. That's when we'll be... Look, just tell the bailiff we'll have the money soon enough. I'll talk to my sister in the meantime. She was already at the door. Her message as muddled as the man's thoughts. He barely heard any of it anyway. Somehow, they had grown apart. He and his wife's paths had diverged ever so slightly, year after year, in ways they hadn't recognized until now. Now that they stood in two very different places, no longer side by side, wondering how they arrived at this point. She liked to go out. He preferred to stay home. She loved being surrounded by the din of the crowds, feeling the jostle of people around her shoulders, markets, parties, markets and parties that racked up a ridiculous amount of debt. He, however, was deathly afraid that someone, somewhere, might talk to him sometime about something. They had grown to be very different. In his family's absence, the weight of the situation settled upon his shoulders. First, the debt that could never be paid. Then the conversation that had to be had with the bailiff. The confrontation looming on the horizon. His knees buckled. What could he possibly say in the morning besides, I didn't know what my family was doing? The bailiff wouldn't be satisfied because the innkeeper would not be satisfied. And then the questioning would begin, followed by the accusations, worsened by the man's nerves. He was not good on his feet. If he ever did a podcast, it would have to be ridiculously scripted, down to even the spontaneous sounding asides. He'd say the wrong thing or mishear the bailiff like he often did with his wife what with the pulse ringing in his ears. There was so much to lose in this future conversation, despite him not having much to lose. I won't lie, the man told himself that night in bed. But he also would not speak on the fly. I will plan the conversation. I will stick to the script. Yes, that's what I'll do, he decided. For the next three hours, the ferryman constructed, Nathan Fielder style, how he wished the morning to go. The bailiff would appear on the horizon and find the man whittling. Ah, yes, that was perfect. Whittling something on the front porch. Approachable, productive, but also serious. Holding a knife like that. Naturally, the bailiff would ask the man what he was carving, and the ferryman would say, it was an axe handle. How long do you think it'll be? The bailiff would ask. Up to this here knot, I believe. The scene was as vivid as his dreams. The back and forth as easy to imagine as remember after pleasantries the bailiff would get down to business, inquiring about the assets and other people to interview. Where's the ferry, you ask? Why, I'm planning to tar her. So she's on the shore, cracked at both ends. The old mare? She's out in the stall, of course, big with foal. The cattle and cow shed? Oh, not too far, up on the hill there. And you'll be there yourself in no time. Yes, it was perfect, the man thought to himself. If he would just stick to the script, he would not have to stress. Then the confrontation would go smoothly and be over. Over. That was all he wanted. Axe handle. Axe handle. Stick to the script. We'll see what happens on the day of the confrontation, but that will, once again, be right after this. Thank you. 
With a ledger lodged beneath his arm, the bailiff tromped down the path toward the cabin in the distance. The air felt too crisp, his hat too tight, his head starting to pound as he grumbled. The bailiff's strong man, the one that frowned and made people talk and pay what they owed, was nowhere in sight. Not here, but also not lost. His muscle was at the local inn, at the pub, having another drink on a workday morning, no less. The bailiff muttered all the way to the front step of the cabin where the man sat whittling a stick. There would be words with his colleague. But first, the bailiff would say the ones he'd come to say to this man, the ferryman, the one that that, that sketchy innkeeper complained about. Hello there, sir, he called, and only then did the ferryman look up. <laughs> Axe handle, said the man, running a knife down the stick in his hands. Uh, so this was the type of day it was going to be then, wasn't it? The bailiff shook it off and pulled the book from beneath an arm. A colleague of mine is delayed in the inn, he said without looking up. How far is it away from here? Pages turned while the bailiff waited for an answer. Up to about this here knot, I believe. The ferryman added a nod this time, but didn't smile. He was a tough guy, this one. And on the day the bailiff's man was delayed, he shut the ledger and locked eyes with the man on the porch. Where's your wife? Is she home that I might speak with her instead? The ferryman shifted but remained seated. Oh, I'm planning to tar her. So she's sitting down on the shore, cracked at both ends. He smiled. The knife cut into the stick again sending a curled shaving to the ground. It was all the bailiff could do not to drop his book. Uh, oh, wow, uh, okay, uh, tell me where your, your daughter is then? She's your oldest, right? The answer shot back. <laughs> She's out in the stall, of course, big with full. Another wood shaving, then another, a pile forming in the dirt, as the bailiff tore off his hat and wiped his brow with the sleeve. Okay, a complete madman then and on the day he had come alone of all days to meet such a fool and get nowhere from the moment the bailiff peered on the horizon the husband's skin had prickled as the bailiff drew near the husband's throat grew dry the rustling wave in his ears so strong he could feel the pulsing as though he were at sea. With palms so slick, he could barely hold the knife and the stick. And more than once, he had to readjust his grip. He didn't even hear the, hello there, sir, that the bailiff said. But instead of a greeting in kind, the ferryman had plunged headlong into his script. Out of fear, out of nerves, he was not thinking, and that was apparent. Hello there, sir, axe handle. He was not good on his feet. The pressure, the weight, the family's debt, the predicament, he was all alone. And so the ferryman had panicked as the bailiff's words melted into noise, and he followed the script to A.T. And somehow, it was working. With every reply, the bailiff's face grew more wrinkled, his step a little further away, his glances more fleeting. Even though the ferryman nearly dropped his knife several times, even though he was so nervous he could not smile or even look up, I just want this to be over, the husband told himself again and again. I want this to be over, and it will be soon. He just had to stick to the script. And he did. Even when the bailiff threw his hat down and pointed at the man. You fool! To the devil with you! The bailiff crowed at the very end. 
And this time, the ferryman heard him plainly, but he didn't know what to say, so he stuck to the script. Up, up on the hill there, and you'll be there yourself in no time. And with that, the bailiff stormed off, and the ferryman sat, a smile just starting to form across his face. Several minutes later, the door to the inn flew open, and the bailiff found his muscle. The man, deep into his third cup. Oh, was it time to go talk to the ferryman? The bailiff shook his head. It was no use. They weren't getting anything from him anyway. The innkeeper said, what? what? And the bailiff pointed to the innkeeper. And you, you should be ashamed taking advantage of him like that. He thinks his daughter is pregnant with a horse, that he's going to tar his wife. The, the innkeeper said, but, but the money they owe me. If the ferryman even did owe him any money, it was canceled now. The shame. The bailiff grabbed his muscle, and they left to go talk to their next debtor. So the dad in the second story made me think of all those times I've said the wrong thing in a crunch. Uh, Full disclosure, though, the character in the original is a man with a profound hearing loss. We chose not to focus on his lack of hearing, but his over-preparation, which is an element of the story and definitely something that I am working on personally not doing. I have a tendency to overthink what I'm going to say to the point that I stick to a script even when sometimes it's not relevant. I mean, this is something that kind of happens to all of us, like when you're at a restaurant and the server says, enjoy, and you say, you too, out of habit, or you're telling someone something cool and you think they say, no way, and you say, way, but they really said, wow, or that time I was meeting our new neighbors and they asked about my family because I had driven ahead to meet the movers. And I, for some reason, ended the conversation with, they definitely exist, which, why would I say that? Now I'm the weird neighbor, which means that I can absolutely relate to being so in your own head that things just come out wrong. And that's the direction we went for this character. Final, final note, the phrase, Gudagman, Erskaskaf, sorry to everyone who speaks Norwegian, but good day, fellow axe handle, is apparently an idiom for a non sequitur throughout Scandinavia, inspired by this story. Next week, we thought, we're writing a book on King Arthur you know what would be a nice chaser to constantly reading about King Arthur? More reading about King Arthur. It's actually a story that will not be in the book, about a knight that chooses a happy family over the brutal terrors of early medieval knighthood, and why that makes him terrible. If you're liking Myths and Legends and want to support the show, there's a couple of ways to do that. One, there's a membership thing on the site, and for Apple Podcast listeners, you can try Myths and Legends Plus straight through the app. Either way, for less than the price of storage souls, insoles that function as secret stash containers so you can hide stuff in your shoes, yes, for less than the price of storage souls, you can get ad-free versions of this show and bonus episodes that will also be a little something special for you, but hopefully will not be described in the reviews as not too durable at all, uncomfortableness, and don't use to stash cash, it won't fit. For more info on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com slash membership. The creature this week is the orc from Not Lord of the Rings. Now, I think I pity the orcs from Lord of the Rings more than anything, but this is not about Tolkien's orcs. This is about everyone else's. Yeah, so Tolkien did not invent orcs. 
I mean, yes, he did invent the twisted elf, always chaotic evil version of orcs, but the general idea has a much longer history. The next step back goes to the poet William Blake, and we're not gonna deep dive into this one. Billy B is probably my least favorite of the romantic poets, but since I can feel people dropping off from the episode, I'll not talk about my poetry preferences. Anyway, his orc is an evil, serpent-like creature responsible for, among other things, the American and French revolutions. Even a stopped watch is right twice a day. It's thought that his orc comes from the word for whale, and if you're feeling adventurous, I link the Wikipedia summary. They make a brief appearance in the Middle Ages among the Saxons and the people of Europe as big, mean monsters. A hero in a story we're gonna tell this year defeated one by propping the monster's mouth open with an anchor, you know, anchors, those things we all carry all the time, and beat it up from the inside. Anyway, we're gonna go back to the ancient world to revisit our old friend Pliny the Elder. Pliny was a Roman writer and commander in the first century AD, and his natural history is, well, sometimes not natural or history. But I shouldn't be too hard on Pliny. The guy did die trying to rescue people from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Anyway, his orcs were the enemies of whales. And not the country whales, <laughs> that's the Romans, but the water mammal whales. The orcs were underwater creatures with mouths full of teeth. Apparently one was spotted eating hides that fell into the ocean at the port city of Ostia. It's not a big logical leap to go from water orcs, sea creatures with mouths full of teeth, to orc us, the actual animal with a mouth full of teeth, and according to Noah, the ocean's top predator. Um, I guess I've been living under a rock lately because while I've read hints of it on Mastodon, research for this clued me in on what's been happening off the coast of Portugal with actual orca whales attacking boats and having sunk three of them. They're reportedly learning from each other how to sink boats more effectively, and as far as I can tell, there's no good explanation as to why this is happening. It's really bizarre. So yeah, I give Pliny the Elder a hard time on the Creature of the Week segment for this podcast, because a lot of the creatures come from his natural history, but I have to give him credit where credit was due. When it comes to orcs, Pliny was right. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we use in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 